0: I've been looking forward to this day. Ready, feel, a sense of belonging here. I am surprised how many connections I've already made. Uh, I have a family here, I believe, if they made it, from Hillsboro, Oregon. Yeah, there they are, great. I have a childhood friend, uh, Christina Durstein, here. I have a college friends, uh, seminary friends, and Fred Obold and Ruth, who I got to pastor with Fred at Bethel College Mennonite Church uh, before moving to Kansas City. So thank you for the great welcome, the hospitality. It's great to be with you this morning. Yes, I'm from Rainbow Mennonite Church, and I have a picture. Do you want to, I don't know, does the screen need to be pulled down or... uh, So we'll wait for that picture of us in front of our church sign as that's coming down. uh, We'll give it a second. Sorry to cover up the window. (laughs) Great. So you'll see a picture. It's a little dated, but I've been at Rainbow for 10 years uh, going on 11. So this was taken, a picture of us early in my pastorate there. So a little-known fact about our name, Rainbow. So we originally, as a church, started in 1957 on Rainbow Boulevard in Kansas City. We're no longer on Rainbow Boulevard, but we kept the name, kind of like it. Rainbow Boulevard, get this. This is not what most people associate with the symbol of the rainbow. Rainbow Boulevard in Kansas City, Kansas, was named after a 42nd Infantry Division of World War I. It was called the Rainbow Division, 42nd. It was a mixed race division of World War I. So the, the early Mennonites on Rainbow Boulevard, they loved being a peace witness on a military boulevard. You know, so, but we're no longer on that boulevard, but we should still try to have a peace witness. Uh, I'm curious, how many of you have can okay, I don't know how you define this. How many of you have Kansas connections? However you want to define that. Be loud and proud, OK? That's a, that's a fair number. So uh, if you haven't been to Kansas, come and see us. We're on the, the tip of Kansas. You know, when I, when I was a hospital chaplain for a time, and I'd tell people where I was from, and a lot of people would just kind of get you know deer in the headlights, like, Kansas. <laughs> I think I've heard of Kansas. And they'd say, oh, I've heard of Kansas City as if Kansas City was a whole state, right? It is not, in case. But now I live in Kansas City, and so I can say, yes, that's where I live. I have been struck already in the short time I've been here talking with Rod, some, of the com- some committee members of this church. How many similarities there are between our two congregations? So hopefully you see. Uh, the next slide actually shows a close-up of our church sign, which says, seek the peace of the city. Right? So some affinity there. Uh, we're both urban churches who have felt and tried imperfectly to respond to Jeremiah's call, to seek the welfare of the city in which you are planted. Right? Many at Rainbow travel a great distance to get to the church building. And I think that's the case here. Um, sometimes people come weekly, sometimes monthly. Sometimes yearly. Uh, Is that familiar to to anyone? People really have to mean to get to church. Like you're not going to just stumble upon Portland Mennonite, right? You had to set an intention to get here. Same with with Rainbow. Uh, We both have youth programming going on. I I don't know much about your Montessori school, but it's neat that your church building is being used throughout the week. Uh, Here's a picture of uh, our uh, program. (laughs) Every summer, we host what used to be a a freedom school. This is a children's defense fund program curriculum uh, for literacy during the summer. So these are all our neighborhood kids who come and spend all day in our church building during the summer months to prevent summer learning loss. Our building at Rainbow was built at the turn of the century, similar to, to this space. And, and I know it's gone through different changes, but our building that we are uh, stewarding, that we own, was built by Methodists. Okay? And this, of course, the original stewards were Quakers here, if you didn't know that. Uh, Let's see, both of our churches underwent a major renovation in the early 2000s. Is that right? Especially in the sanctuary. And our two churches have stained glass windows uh, that you did not choose, at least as a church um, community. And just like Rainbow, I can imagine you have... um, mixed feelings about these windows, big feelings maybe. Some of you might wish you would just stop talking about the windows, that is the case at Rainbow too. (laughs) The day I submitted my final grant um, uh, summary, uh, I I received a grant from Louisville uh, Institute a pastoral study grant. The day I submitted my final report, my one of my prized pieces of art uh, framed crashed to the ground, shattered the glass frame into a million pieces that I'll still be picking up probably for years. And somebody who's been particularly uh, frustrated with how much i've been obsessed with stained glass windows she said you know i think this is a sign ruth you just need to move on Uh, so clearly i have not moved on that's because the study in the stained glass windows it it just has been extraordinary for me Uh, i didn't plan that it would be during a global pandemic right when we were all Re-evaluating so everything, um, but including how do we navigate our spaces uh, safely um, with some of the new challenges. Uh, so it's been it's been a real joy, and I, I think this study will be a lifelong uh, study for me. So I am glad that I have a fresh audience this morning. <laughs> maybe not. Oh, maybe not. It's been a study. I often say this to people. So I've been calling this stained theology, and we can talk more in the second hour. Those who are interested in how I came to that phrase, and I'm I'm curious, kind of. I think I do. I have a picture of the logo. Oh, that's our window at Rainbow. Okay, it's there's some similarities. Uh, It used to be uh, Jesus ascending into the clouds. And the visual arts committee at Rainbow said, you know, I think we want Jesus on the ground. We want a Jesus on the ground because of the ethics and the the moral compass, the way of life that we seek to pattern our lives after. So they got rid of the clouds. They, They didn't. They hired a stained glass window company. This was in the early 2000s. Nobody at that time about his skin color. You know, there was some pretty astute theological thinking that went into the scene of Jesus in the garden, blessing people off feet on the ground. And yet, there was, to my knowledge, no kind of wrestling with his skin color. And that would have been the time, a really ideal time to change that. So I have one more picture. Okay, so here's the Stained Theology logo. My, my husband is an illustrator, so he's, he's been a great partner in this study, and we created this together. So be thinking about this phrase. I'm going to be asking you what you, what you feel when you, when you hear Stained Theology. So this morning, I, I'll stay for the second hour. I want to just paint... Some, some broader strokes with you of some of my musings currently after visiting over a hundred places of worship over the last two years kind of spread out. Uh, I've been north, south, east, west. haven't done much international study yet. Uh, been in rural areas, urban. Graveyards sometimes, mausoleums have incredible stained glass windows, so I've I've just tried universities in towns, uh, chapels, hospitals, um, these public um, spaces uh, where there's religious art and uh, have really uh, just learned, learned so much. So some broad strokes here, okay, and then second hour we can get into more specifics. So I set out for this project in 2019. I started writing a proposal. And I was in a state. I was pretty, um, uh, it's hard to find the words, heartbroken, restless, demoralized at times in the wake of George Floyd's death, Okay. There's been many wake up calls for me personally and I think communally along the way. Um, There was something that shattered for me in in trying to unpack that moment um, for this country. And so, you know, I went into this study with some grief, um, some fear, uh, some real unsettled. Uh, around race uh, in this country and how I walk around as a white woman who identifies as a woman. Um, So I had a lot of questions going into this study, and questions can be really overwhelming at times. Have we all been there? (laughs) Where it's just too much at times. And one of the, the great poets that I leaned on as I embarked on this study is uh, Rilke, um, Maria Wilke. Um This is what he says, and I'm paraphrasing here. I think it echoes First Corinthians. When we, when we face these daunting matters um, around race and belonging and identity, listen to what he says. And again, I'm parasy- um, paraphrasing. When things in life feel unsolvable, or unsolved, he says, try your best, you'll fail, but try your best to love the questions themselves. When answers feel locked away, or in a book, like think about a book that is in a language that you don't know yet. It feels kind of locked, the content feels a bit locked away. Don't get frustrated, he says. Don't panic. We naturally, many of us, want for there to be resolution. We want to move on. We want to accomplish something. And Hopefully, he says, we learn to live our questions. Instead of giving up on uh, the matter at hand or giving up on each other, society, what if we live the questions in better ways? Perhaps, he says, and this is a direct quote, perhaps we will then gradually, sometimes without even noticing it, live along some distant day into the answers. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians, that we see only in part right now. One day we will see more completely face to face. Right now we are all seeing in a glass dimly, right? We prophesy in part. So at the heart of um, sort of what feels so daunting right now, in this moment, as a human being right now, for me personally, what feels so daunting and um, unsolvable sometimes is the question. How do we as humans, who come from vastly different perspectives and life experiences, um, stories and traumas, awareness, how do we learn as humans to work together? To collaborate in this human endeavor? to truly welcome one another, right? Not just be a welcoming community to those who come to us, but how do we welcome one another across race, gender, sexuality, language, nationalities, faiths, class, abilities, neurodiversity. I mean, it just goes on and on. How do we work better, find better tools of working together? And how can Jesus' life, his teachings, his on-the-ground teachings, how might that shape our work ahead? How can we kind of align ourselves or tap into Jesus' life, his abundant life. Now, my Mennonite background has twists and turns, and I've been in lots of spaces where there weren't um, many Mennonites, and been grateful for all of those experiences. I would say that that something I've learned, thanks to many of my Mennonite Anabaptist mentors, is this way of reading scripture or understanding Jesus, that at the heart of his message, okay, trying to wrestle with what Jesus taught in, in in the New Testament, Jesus is teaching something really profound, um, uh, timeless, about power. Okay, let's just entertain that for a bit. Modeling and encouraging people to lay down certain expressions of power. Now, so for Mennonites... We have often lifted up uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah's call to turn, or the vision, to turn swords into plowshares, right? To take a tool that is uh, more oriented towards uh, violence and harm and turning that into a tool of greater productivity and to cultivate something, right? So... Jesus, Anabaptists have long heard in Jesus' call to lay down weapons, to exert power, not through violent force, but through love. And so I've been entertaining this Isaiah text, actually, in the midst of this study of stained glass. What if we, and I, saw racism, and I'm talking how it has been manifest through lots of time here, okay? How racism has been kind of wielded and perpetuated through time. What if we saw that as its own weapon, right? Doing violence to people, and not just people of color doing violence to even my psyche. (laughs) That racism is damaging um, people of color and people who identify as white. Um, And what would it be like to be part of a movement? And in many ways, I feel like being part of the Mennonite group is being part of this movement that kept learning to forge new tools, right? to counteract the, the violence, the weapon that is racism. Now, how many of you know, this is a bit of a segue, or a, a leap, how many of you know Jimi Hendrix, personally? Uh, personally yeah. <laughs> the last time I checked, Jimi Hendrix was not an Anabaptist. Um, But he was quite the astute theologian, could be at times, the the great guitarist. I want to show a picture. It's going to be hard to see. And with all of these pictures, if if you can't see it, I think there'll be a way to show you afterwards. I found this quote in a record store bathroom (laughs) on the floor. And it, I just, I was in there a long time meditating <laughs> on this. It says, this is a quote attributed to Jimi Hendrix, when the love of power is overcome by the power of love. Okay, did you get that? When the love of power is over- overcome by the power of love, the world will know peace. It something different here. It does? Oh, it's backwards. I'm sorry. Well, we get it backwards, don't we? <laughs> a lot of the times. You'll have to take my word for it. That's what it says. And I think it's, again, a kind of a version of First Corinthians um, about love. When we cease or, or change our love of power into the power of love, In many ways, this is, I think, the heart of the gospel on a bathroom floor. (coughs) And I, that day, sitting there thinking about that quote, began to just feel this overwhelming sense that this is a gift, This, this gospel, this good news. This is a gift that's waiting for us as a people. Uh, that that we can tap into, we hope, uh, even if we do it imperfectly and partially. Um, yeah, I I want to just say a few few more words here. Um, Actually, one more photo here. Uh, I'm gonna due to time. I'm gonna go through pretty quickly. Uh, This is just in terms of this project never being done. The week I turned in my final proposal or summary, I received this in the mail. And it's from a stained glass company uh, kind of insisting that they can fix anything, right? What's broken, what's shattered, what's um, cleaning windows. But I'm like, can you fix racism? (laughs) Right? In this, in this country. Well here, I want to pivot just a bit. Um, and I want to talk about why I chose Psalm 122. Because I think this too has been one of the musings that, that really sticks with me. That I've returned to over and over. So I don't particularly love Psalm 122. It's printed in the bulletin. Uh, It's a song of David, Uh, especially right now with what's happening in Jerusalem, right, where the the security towers and the walls of belonging feel, um, well, there's been so much exclusion right, in that area. Of the world. And that's a sermon for another day, so we won't go uh, there. Um, The psalmist, though, sings a song that I cannot get out of my head. I was glad when they said, Let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad. You know, I in traveling the country, visiting different churches, I've heard so many stories, both of people who have felt that glad heart being part of a church community. Many of you probably are right there. I have also heard so many stories of people who have felt traumatized and damaged, Um, no peace, felt, within the walls of the church. Many would like to come. I hear this over and over. But so many religious spaces have become so toxic. Think about that. Some would even say there's kind of a, a violence done with some of the symbols that have become associated with racism, with white supremacy. And so I'm asking myself, how, how as communities, can we uh, respond to that and be hopeful with people that we can make, create space together that will be healing in the midst of this toxicity that is all around us? I think we all want to feel that glad heart. We want that sense of belonging. We want to know our belovedness. And I hope we want to know Jesus' belovedness and his vision for a beloved um, community, a beloved um, uh, family. So I want to end with one more thought. Hopefully it's an encouraging word to you all, especially for those who are uh, impatient, um, who find the words from 1 Corinthians really hard to practice, right? Being patient. And In the midst of this study, I attended a mental health webinar. And it couldn't have come at a better time for me. Um, And it was a woman who has had a very um, difficult life herself, who coaches mental health providers to, to work with their teams and with their clients. And she urged all these people who are trying to be helpful, right, and Provide encouragement for the people they work with. She said, you know, we spend a lot of time as people, as humans, um, pointing to someone and saying, you know, what's, what's the matter with that person? If they, if they could just do this or this or this, what's the matter? What's the matter with this person? And she said, What if we spend more time asking the question, what matters to you? You know, instead of what is the matter with you? What matters to you? And how does that sort of um, sit with Jesus' teaching, with, with what mattered most to Jesus? And Jesus was all about being with people with less power, who were often shut out, Exclude it. So how I hope and pray that Portland Mennonite Church, Rainbow Mennonite Church, uh, you, the future unicorn Mennonite Church will, will be part of that movement going forward. I have great hope and, and trust that we can move forward imperfectly, but we can move forward. Again, thanks for having me today.